and the Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sheet of notes that was given to you as you entered the hall this evening is a rough outline of the subject matter that we hope to consider this evening. Those notes are by no means exhaustive. They are merely a basic outline of that which we are planning to consider. We're not doing it to try and make you lazy, but we're trying to encourage you to fill in the gaps and, and to make notes of those things that are not included upon that sheet. As our brother Hugh has pointed out, in our last class we considered those verses in which, which recalled Gabriel's visit to Mary and the wonderful things that he promised unto her. And there were those verses, verses 31, 32 and 33, that we left, we gave very little consideration to in our last class. We left those to give a greater consideration to this evening. And so in verse 31 we read the words of Gabriel to Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob for ever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And so Mary was told in verse 31 that she was going to give birth to a son. And she was instructed to call his name Jesus. A name which means the salvation of Yahweh. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. It was a name that was quite common at that time. There were been many Jesuses in the land at that time. So the very name of Jesus did not mark him out obviously as being the salvation, the, the, the saviour that Yahweh would provide. His name meant the salvation of Yahweh. But there were many in the nation at that time that bore that name. And so, once again we see that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the honour of kings to search it out. And the fact that Jesus was to be the saviour wasn't openly manifest from this name. It was only to those who had eyes to see and ears to hear that recognised him as the salvation of Yahweh. We find back in Numbers chapter 13 that Joshua, with the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek name Jesus, the man Joshua was originally had the name of O'Shea, which means salvation. Verse 8 of Numbers 13 states, Of the tribe of Ephraim, Oshay, the son of Nun. His name just means salvation. But down in verse 16 we read, These are the names of the men which Moses sent out to spy out the land. And Moses called Oshay, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. He changed his name from salvation to the salvation of Yahweh. And this was the time when Moses was to send those spies out into the land that they might spy it out. And he was giving them a little reminder that salvation was of Yahweh. It wasn't to come for themselves, but they were to look to Yahweh for their strength and their salvation. But of course only two men of those twelve spies recognised the principle and had faith in Yahweh. We find that Joshua became the leader of Israel who after Moses' death led Israel into that land. You see Moses was unable to lead them into that land because he sinned. So because of sin Moses the great lawgiver could not lead Israel into that land and neither could that law that he gave give Israel an inheritance in that land. And so they had to look to Joshua. They had to look to the salvation of Yahweh to lead them in and give them an inheritance in the promised land. And Joshua did lead them in and did give them an inheritance. 
And so their attention was directed to the fact that by works of law they would never gain that inheritance. But by looking for the salvation of Yahweh they could be led into the promised land. Now we turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. We see that there were certain things that the law couldn't do. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh because of sin the law could never give eternal life. And what the law could not do God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. See, what the law could not do, Yahweh did. And Yahweh provided salvation. And Yahweh provided that salvation through this one who was going to be born of Mary. Now as we look at these these words in verses 32 and 33, we must be impressed with the fact that Gabriel here is making clear reference to the covenant that God made with David. Every statement there that Gabriel made to Mary can be based, was based upon the promises that God made to David. And it shows us the importance of those covenants of promise. You know, the very first words in the New Testament that we find spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ are based upon the covenants of promise. The words of Gabriel to Mary here are based upon the covenant with David. The opening words of the book of Matthew are the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You turn to the last page of the New Testament and you find the Lord Jesus Christ revealing that he is the bright and the morning star uh, and speaking of himself as the offspring of David. And so we see that the very life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is based upon those covenants of promise that we find back in the pages of the Old Testament. And Gabriel directs Mary's attention back to second of Samuel chapter seven and first of Chronicles chapter seventeen. Those two chapters that record the great promises that God made unto David. And you'll notice that on this sheet we have underlined and each point we have underlined the quotation in the second of Samuel chapter 7 showing you how Gabriel's words were clearly based upon those promises that God made to David back in second of Samuel chapter 7. And so we come to the first statement. Gabriel says to Mary, He shall be great. We go back to second of Samuel chapter 7. <coughs> 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verses 12 and 13 we read And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So here's a son who's going to have a kingdom and that kingdom is going to be established forever and he's going to build a house for Yahweh's name. Indeed, this son of David will be great. And when we look at the comments of David in the Psalms, in Psalm 89 for example, in verse 27, we see that the psalmist speaks of the greatness of this future king. In Psalm 89 and verse 27 we read Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So indeed this seed of David will be great. And when we go to such places as the 72nd Psalm, again we read of the future greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in Psalm 72 and verses 8 and 11. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Verse 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. So he is one that truly will be great. And the Apostle Paul, speaking of this man, in his epistle to the Philippians, chapter 2, speaks of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verse 8, Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he's been given a name which is above every name. Every knee is going to bow to that name. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Indeed, he is a man who will be great. But notice the basis upon which Yahweh has given him that name. Notice the basis upon which Yahweh has made him great. Because in verse 8 he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it was because he humbled himself in that way that Yahweh has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name and established him that he will be a great man in the earth in the future times. You know, the book of Proverbs sets forth a scriptural principle. In Proverbs 15 and 33 and Proverbs 18 and verse 12, Solomon states, Before honour is humility. And that's a principle that we see exhibited in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the days of his first advent he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He became obedient unto death. He was despised and rejected of men at that time. But because he so humbled himself, Yahweh will highly exalt him and he will be a great man. He will be an illustrious king in the earth in the future times. You know, in the second of Timothy, chapter 2 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. You see, if we want to be great with the Lord Jesus Christ in the age to come, then we must be humbled with him now. We must empty ourselves of ourselves and we must become obedient unto death. And those words of Gabriel, he shall be great to the discerning mind, would indicate that first he would be humble. First he would be humble that Yahweh might exalt him and make him great in the earth in the future time. You know, not only is the Lord Jesus Christ to be great, not only is he to be a great king in the earth, but Gabriel went on and said, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. The fact that he, the very wording of Gabriel there, he shall be called Son of the Highest, shows that this will be, as it were, a title bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be called Son of the Highest. You know, again we find the basis of this back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There it was promised to David, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was said to him there in verse 14, I will be his father 
and he shall be my son. I will be his father and he shall be my son. You know, Gabriel said he would be the son of the highest. There is no higher than the highest. Now in the 82nd Psalm, and at verse 5, we have reference to the highest. Speaking of the uh, future times of the true sons of Zion and so forth, verse 5 of Psalm 87 says, And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her. The highest himself shall establish her. So the highest is one who is going to establish Zion. He is the one who is going to establish the kingdom of God. And he's referred to there in verse 5 as the highest himself. You know, in the Hebrew, we don't find this term, the highest, mentioned a great many times in the scriptures. It is referred to a few times in the book of Daniel and other places. But in the Hebrew, it's the word Elyon, which we do find translated many, many times as the most high. Uh, Genesis 14 and verse 19 is an example of the usage of this phrase, the most high. It's equivalent to the highest. In Genesis chapter 14, we have the words of Abraham in verse 19, or or rather the words of Melchizedek to Abraham. And he said, and he blessed him, and said, Blessed be Abram of of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be the most high God here it's the uh, Ael Elyon the most high Ael and the most high is the same as the words for the highest in Psalm 87 but here we see the most high described as the possessor of heaven and earth and that word possessor there indicates that he is the possessor of heaven and earth because he, is, he has created the heavens and the earth. The word possessor actually is a word which means to erect or to create. And he becomes the possessor of heaven and earth because he has created them. And this is the highest. The one who has brought everything that exists into existence. And he owns everything and possesses everything. And he it is whom the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be called the Son of the Highest. Now going back to the book of Psalms, and this time to Psalm 82, we read concerning the Most High, in Psalm 82 and at verse 6. Here is uh, Yahweh speaking through the psalmist, to the people of Israel, particularly to the elders and the judges and the rulers of that nation. He says, I have said ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. He says, Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. And here, through the psalmist, Yahweh is speaking to the, to the uh, judges of Israel. He speaks to them in verse 2, How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? He says, Descend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. And he's rebuking the judges of Israel because they were not executing sound and right judgment in that land. And he says in verse 6, Look, I've called you gods, I've called you Elohim. You are all the children of the Most High. Israel was Yahweh's firstborn nation. They've been brought into a very special relationship with the Most High. And he says, You're not judging justly. You're children of the Most High, but you'll die like men. And you'll fall like one of the princes. 
because they were not executing right and sound judgment. Now the Lord Jesus Christ takes this point up in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In the sixth chapter of Luke and at verse 35 the Lord Jesus Christ says but love ye your enemies and do good and lend hoping for nothing again and your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. You see what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing here? He says, look, if you want to be the children of God, then in your relationships one with another, you've got to act like God would act. You've got to be like the Most High to be counted as the children of the Most High. And in all your dealings with your fellow man, you've got to deal with them as Yahweh would deal with them. And if you deal with them as the Most High deals with them, then you shall be the children of the Most High, the children of the Highest. And so you see, we find the Scriptures is telling us that if we're to be the children of God, we've got to manifest the character of God. We've got to reveal his likeness and his character that we might truly be his children. And you know, when God said to David, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be his father and he shall be my son, he was predicting that the Lord Jesus Christ would be a man who would be the son of God in every sense of the word. He was begotten by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was brought into existence by God in a very special way as no other man ever has. He was the Son of God in that sense. But as that child grew up, he developed and manifested the character of his father. So truly he was the son of his father. And those principles will be recognised in the age to come. And people will call him then the Son of the Highest. Now there's another interesting quotation in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 78, verse 35, where we read concerning the Most High. Psalm 78 and verse 35, speaking of the people of Israel, uh, it says, and when he slew them, then they sought him, in verse 34, and they returned and inquired early after Ale, and they remembered that Elohim was their rock, and the high God, the most high, the highest himself, the high God, their redeemer. You know that word redeemer there in the Hebrew, it's the word goel. It refers to a near kinsman. And so you see what the psalmist is saying there and they remembered <coughs> that God was their rock and the most high or the high God their kinsman, their redeemer. How was the most high their kinsman? How was the most high to become their redeemer in that sense of the word? Well you see Gabriel was telling Mary how that was to come to pass. He says, He shall be the Son of the Highest. He says, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And he was to be the Son of the Highest in the fullest sense of the word. And through that man, through that Son, the Highest became their redeemer, became their goel, became their near kinsman who was able to redeem them. And so you see, these are the things that are being revealed to Mary as Gabriel expounds to Mary, principle by principle, the things that were promised to David back in 2 Samuel and chapter 7. And so we read in verse 30, verse um, 32 there he shall be called the son of the highest 
And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. The Lord God shall give unto him. And you know, at no stage, at no stage whatever, did the Lord Jesus Christ in any way try to grasp that throne. There's no stage at all that he got impatient and said, well, I want that throne now. He has waited patiently until the day will come when the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. You see, the throne of his father David, again we go back to the second of Samuel chapter 7. And there in, there, in those words spoken to David by Nathan the prophet, we have it promised that the Lord Jesus Christ would one day receive the throne of his father David. 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13. I will set up thy seed after thee, that which will proceed out of thy bowels, I will establish his kingdom, uh, so on and so forth. Verse 16, thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. <coughs> and in the first of Chronicles, and chapter 29, and verse 23, we learn that that throne was really Yahweh's throne. Chapter 29 and verse 23, Then Solomon sat upon the throne of Yahweh as king instead of David his father and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. So you see, the Lord Jesus Christ would clearly recognise that that throne was Yahweh's throne. That's why it was Yahweh's right to give him that throne when he saw fit to do so. And so it's Yahweh's throne that the Lord Jesus Christ is to receive. And he's to sit upon that throne and reign over the kingdom of God forever as Yahweh's representative. Now in Psalm 89 and verse 29 we see that that throne is to last forever. Psalm 89 and verse 29 His seed also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. In the third chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah we have reference to this throne that will be established in the future time. Jeremiah chapter 3 and at verse 17 and at that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of Yahweh to Jerusalem neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. This is the throne that, that the Lord God is going to give unto the Lord Jesus Christ. He will reign as a glorious king in the city of Jerusalem and all nations will be gathered unto it. There are of course many, many quotations to which we could turn which tell us of the throne of David and, those, uh, and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ of the future times. But we trust of course that we are all well familiar with these fundamental aspects of our hope. The final statement that Gabriel made or promise that Gabriel made concerning the Lord Jesus Christ was that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And again we find that this was clearly outlined to David back in 2nd of Samuel chapter 7. In 2nd of Samuel chapter 7 in verse 9 firstly we read And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Verses 23 and 24. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name 
and to do for, for you great things and terrible. For thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods, and thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Yahweh, art become their God. And of course, although Israel is dispersed from their land today, we know that there is abundant testimony from the pages of the prophets, from Ezekiel 37, Jeremiah 31, uh, to, to mention just a couple, that tell us quite plainly that Israel is to be restored, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is to reign over them as a glorious king in the future times. And so we see how Gabriel here was expounding, as it were, the covenant to David. And he was clearly showing Mary that that child that was to be born under her was that promised seed to David. And all the great things that were promised concerning him would, um, would, would come upon uh, that, that child that she was to bear. Now, we find then, as, as Hugh pointed out in his resume, that in verse 34, Mary accepts all that Gabriel had said, but she asks the question, how is this going to come about, seeing I haven't got a husband? And in verse 35, we read, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon them, and the power of the highest shall overshadow them. And that holy thing which shall be born to thee shall be called the Son of God. And so that Son was to be brought about by divine intervention. The power of the Holy Spirit was to generate the, uh, uh, the, the, the beginning of that, that child in the womb of Mary. You know, why was it necessary for God to intervene in this way, to produce the Saviour? You see, when we consider ourselves, and we consider the constitution of man in general, we find really that man, we can divide man into two parts. There is the evil fleshly nature that we have, a nature that has a tremendous potential for evil. But then we're given a moral capacity to be able to cope with the, that potential for evil. So that we have this, we have, we have an evil nature, but we have a moral or spiritual capacity which, with which we are able to cope and control with the, the evils of that nature. You see, and in the case of every man that's ever lived, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, man has really been unable to cope with that nature completely. There are different degrees, of course. Some don't cope with it at all. Others do cope with it uh, relatively well. But there has never been a man outside the Lord Jesus Christ who was able to cope with the evils of that nature completely so that he could go right through life never having yielded to the principle of sin, never having fallen short of the, of the glory of God and the things that Yahweh requires of a man. And no man born with an earthly mother or father would ever be able to extricate himself from that position. That's why it was necessary for divine intervention to take place. To produce a man who would bear all the weaknesses of human nature from his mother, so that he might be identified with us in every way, that he might from his mother bear all those weaknesses and evil propensities of human nature, but a man who would have sufficient moral capacity to be able to cope with that, to be able to overcome it and to destroy it in his death. And so we find that Yahweh intervened and a man was produced that had Mary as his mother but the, but, but, but the, 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 the highest himself as his father. A child of course inherits characteristics from both parents and from his mother he received all the weaknesses and evil propensities of human nature. 
But because of the fact that God was his father and he was brought about by divine intervention, he had a greater moral capacity than any of us have got. A greater capacity for spiritual things. And being born with that capacity and by his willing application to his father's word and submission to his father's hand, that capacity was developed into a largeness of mind that was able to cope with the power of sin, was able to suppress it through his life and destroy it in his death. And it took divine intervention to produce such a man as that. And that's why back in the book of Genesis we see the promised redeemer described as the seed of the woman, one whom Yahweh would produce from the woman. So he'd be the seed of the woman and the son of God. And he would be the redeemer of mankind. And now we find it told here to Mary in verse 35 how it was going to be brought to pass. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. We see that by the action of the Holy Spirit upon her, she was with child, she conceived in her womb, and that child was to be the Son of God. And Mary was told that the power of the highest would overshadow her, and therefore also that holy thing which would be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And so the overshadowing protection of the highest himself was to hover, as it were, over that young woman, protecting her in this this um, uh, time that had come upon her. And so in verse 38 we see Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. They're quite remarkable words really. Here was Mary had these exceeding great and precious promises made unto her. She'd had these things explained to her. And with humble submission she says, Be it unto me according to thy word. And then in verse 39 we read, And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah. She went with haste. She went in a hurry, as the word uh, implies. So she just received this remarkable message from the angel. The angel had told her in verse 36, Behold thy cousin, the word doesn't necessarily mean a cousin, it just means a kinsman or a kinswoman in this case. She was a relative, didn't have to be a cousin, a relative of some sort. Behold thy relative Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And so we can imagine Mary's position. She's had these remarkable things told unto her. Who can she talk about them to? Who's going to understand her feelings? Who can she converse with? Well there was one woman who would understand because she was in a very similar position herself and that was Elizabeth. And not only that, Elizabeth, as we've indicated before, was a very old woman. Six months with child. A woman who would need, no doubt, help and ministration in those last few weeks before the child was born. And so we find Mary, with haste, travelling down to the hill country of Judea. Now it's a journey of some distance. Um, we've got Mary's up in the north at Nazareth which is marked up there in the north the hill country of Judea possibly the region of Hebron would be about 20 miles down to the south of Jerusalem now we don't know of course what route Mary took but had she gone down had she uh, travelled down through Samaria she would have come from Nazareth down and she would have passed through Shechem and it was at Shechem that Yahweh had said to Abram, Unto thy seed will I give this land. She'd have passed on from Shechem, she'd have come down to the region of Bethel, where Yahweh had said unto Abram, 
Look northward, southward, eastward and westward. All the land that thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth for multitude. And so you see, as Mary came to these places, she's got the words of the angel Gabriel upon her mind. I wonder what her thoughts would have been as she contemplated those great promises. She'd have passed on and she'd have come down to Jerusalem, the very place where David's throne was to be established forever. And then from, from, uh, from Jerusalem she'd have passed on, possibly, down to the region of Hebron. And it was down in the region of Hebron that Yahweh had taken Abraham forth out of the tent and said, Look to the heavens, look to the stars if thou be able to number them, so shall thy seed be. We can imagine the thoughts that would have been dominant in Mary's mind as she hurries make this journey down into the hill country of Judea. And so she makes she completes her journey. And she arrives there in the hill country of Judea. And in verse 41 we read, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Mary found the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and she entered into that house, as verse 40 tells us, and when Elizabeth was there and she heard Mary's salutation, Mary became filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, Elizabeth did rather, the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and revealed to Elizabeth that Mary was to be the mother of the Messiah. And so by divine inspiration this message was conveyed to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth became conscious of the fact that the mother of the Messiah had entered her house. And she became filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're told there in verse 41 that the babe leaped in her womb. Verse 44 tells us why the babe leaped in her womb. For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And so as as Elizabeth became filled with the Holy Spirit, even the very babe in her womb became sensitive to the fact that that here the greater than he, the Messiah of Israel, was there in that house also. And the baby leaped in in Elizabeth's womb for joy. And Elizabeth became filled with joy and excitement that she became conscious of the fact that there before her was the mother of the Son of God. And in verse 42 we read that she... and she spake out with a loud voice and she said blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb and whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me and so Mary, uh, Elizabeth rather being conscious now of the personage who had come into her presence She says, Blessed or happy art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come unto me? Seems almost an echo of Psalm 110. The words of David. Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. And Elizabeth recognises now that that child that is to be born of Mary is to be her Lord, the one she looked for and longed for, the one she had waited for, the Messiah of Israel, the great Saviour of mankind. And she became filled with joy. And then in verse 45 she said, And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Blessed is she that believes. You know, in that very house, probably in their very presence at that time, 
was a man who couldn't speak. A man who possibly couldn't hear what was going on. He was sitting there dumb because he hadn't believed. And Elizabeth said, Blessed is she that believes. You know, when we commenced our study, we pointed out that Luke chapter 1 is a chapter of contrast. We saw how we had Herod the Great on one hand and Zechariah the priest on the other. There's a contrast between Herod the Great and John the Baptist who was to be great. There's a Herod the Great and the Lord Jesus Christ who is to be great. We have now a contrast, I believe, between Zechariah and Mary. And I believe that beneath the, 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 the words here, there is a very beautiful parable being worked out. Now when we contrast Zechariah and Mary, we find that Zechariah was a very old man. He waxed old and he was ready to vanish away. But Mary was a young woman in the bloom of youth. We find that when Zechariah went into the holy place of the temple, he went in there as a priest of the order of Aaron. He went in there to burn incense as the official representative of Israel under the law. Whereas we find Mary, she's a true daughter of Zion. She's a young woman of faith. We find that Zechariah, when Gabriel spoke to him as the official representative of the nation under the law, he couldn't believe. He couldn't believe it. And of course, Israel under the law couldn't believe it either. They couldn't believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God. We find that because he couldn't believe the punishment, he was smitten dumb. He couldn't speak. We find that, 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 that Israel under the law at that time were, were dumb also to the, to the true principles of the truth. When Zechariah came forth from the holy place of the temple, he couldn't bless the people. He was dumb. He couldn't pronounce that formal blessing that the people waited for. He couldn't bless them. On the other hand, we find that this young woman Mary, being a true virgin daughter of Zion, when Gabriel spoke to her, she believed. She praised God with her lips and she brought a blessing for all mankind. And so you see, there's a tremendous contrast between Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, when we go to Hebrews chapter 1, we find that the Apostle Paul, speaking to us concerning the Mosaic law, he says in verse 10, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hand. And we know here he's speaking figuratively. He's speaking of the Mosaic constitution of that nation. He says, They shall perish, but thou remainest. They all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels saith he at any time, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And so the Apostle Paul here in the book of Hebrews is showing us that that Mosaic constitution had waxed old and was ready to vanish away. And a new constitution was to be brought in. Uh, the new constitution based upon the Son of God. And here we find this old priest, unable to believe, faithless at that particular moment of time. As we indicated before, we believe as a man, he was a faithful man, he was a righteous man. But as he acted there in his official capacity, he couldn't believe, he was smitten dumb, he couldn't bring a blessing upon the people. But the virgin daughter of Zion, moved by faith, this young woman, she believed, she praised God, she brought a blessing and she ushered in that new dispensation into the nation. And I believe that these things are being set before us here in this um, first chapter of the Gospel of Luke as a parable of those very things. And then you see, there's Elizabeth. 
The name Elizabeth means the oath of my God. She believed when Zechariah went home with the message. By faith she received strength to conceive seed. She was able to pronounce a, a blessing upon Mary. And we see her in the position of those covenants of promise. The covenants of promise which had foretold the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ right from the very beginning of time. But Zechariah, the representative of that law in his official capacity at that time, he couldn't believe. He was ready to vanish away. Uh, and and, and he, uh, Although he produced the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was to proclaim the, uh, and introduce the Messiah to Israel. And then the law was finished and done away. And so we believe there is an interesting contrast there between Elizabeth, uh, Zechariah and Mary. And so in verse 45, Elizabeth says, Blessed is she that believes, for there shall be a performance of those things which are told her from the Lord. And then we find in verses 46 to 55, Mary responds, with a beautiful song of praise. And as we just put on the sheet here that we've given out, we've given a little outline of that song, a little introduction to the song, not an outline of it, a little introduction to the song. And notice on the bottom of that sheet, on meeting Elizabeth, Mary broke forth in a beautiful song of joy and triumph. This song is based on Moses' song of deliverance in Exodus 15, and Hannah's song of triumph in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. Moses' song was sung when Israel was delivered from Egypt through baptism in the Red Sea. It speaks of the triumph of Israel over slavery and death through deliverance by the mighty hand of Yahweh. Hannah's song, although based of course upon her personal experiences in, in Elkanah's house, Hannah's song goes far beyond that the rivalry of her adversary and the work of her own son Samuel and it contemplates the greater rivalry between the two women of the apocalypse that's the bride of Christ and the apostate woman and it celebrates the victory of the Messiah. So those few words I believe indicate to us the richness and the beauty of this song of praise in which Mary burst forth as she met Elizabeth. And we read there in verse 46. Well, first of all, let us just take a, a brief look at this, this song and see the ways in which it is based upon these songs of the past. We've stated that it's based, of, uh, 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 based upon a harmony of Moses' song recorded in Exodus 15 and Hannah's song recorded in the first of Samuel chapter 2. Just to illustrate what we mean, we turn to Exodus chapter 15 and we keep a, uh, our hand in Luke chapter 1 so that we can compare the two. For instance, in verse 47 of Luke chapter 1 we read, um, or, or verse 46, Mary said, My soul does magnify the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour. We go to Exodus chapter 15 and verse 2 where Moses sings, Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my ail. I will prepare him a habitation. So you see Moses says, He is my salvation. Mary says, I rejoice in God my Saviour. We go to verse 49. He says, For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. We read in, verse 15, in Exodus 15 and verse 11, Who is like unto thee, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And so Moses says, uh, Who is like unto thee? Um, in verse 11 there, Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, 
Mary says in verse 49, He that is mighty hath done great things, and holy is his name. In verse 50 of Luke chapter 1 he says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 13. Moses says, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. So he speaks of the mercy of Yahweh to his people. And there in verse 50 of Luke chapter 1, Mary rejoices in the mercy of Yahweh to his people. In verse 51 of Luke chapter 1, we read, he hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. And so she makes reference to the strength of Yahweh's arm. In, verse, in Exodus 15 and verse 6, we read, Thy right hand, O Yahweh, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Yahweh, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Verse 12, Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Verse 16, Fear and dread shall fall upon them by the greatness of thine arm. They shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Yahweh, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. And so there we read of the power of the arm of Yahweh. And in that 51st verse of Luke chapter 1, Mary rejoices that Yahweh has shown the strength of his arm. In verse 52 she says, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. In verse 16 of, of Moses' song, Exodus 15, we read, Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over. O Yahweh, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them and so on and so forth. And so, speaking of the way that Yahweh put down the mighty and exalted them of low degree. In verse 53 Mary states in Luke chapter 1, He has filled the hungry with good things, the rich has he sent away empty. And in verse 17 we read of Exodus 15, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Yahweh, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Yahweh, which thy hands have established. Speaking of the day when the hungry will be filled with good things and the rich will be sent away empty. And in verse 54 he says, He hath Holpen his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Again reflected in that 17th verse of Exodus chapter 15. And so you see right through this psalm, <coughs> Mary is drawing upon statements and principles that are set forth in that song of rejoicing that Moses sang when Israel was delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea. And Mary, as she contemplated the great things that Yahweh would do, saw that through her son a greater deliverance would be wrought for those who would separate themselves from the world and those who would pass through the waters of baptism to be identified with her son. A great deliverance would be wrought for them after the style of Israel coming up out of the land of Egypt. We find also, as we said before, that, that Mary here is harmonised. The songs of Moses and the song of Hannah. You see, we go to second of Samuel chapter two, first of Samuel chapter two rather. And in the first of Samuel chapter two, verses one to ten, we have recorded so, uh, Hannah's Beautiful song of praise after the birth of Samuel. In, um, in verse 48 of Luke chapter 1, Mary says, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. 
For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. He's regarded the low estate of his handmaid. And the word translated there, low estate, is a word which means humiliation. He's regarded the humiliation of his handmaiden. And behold, all nations shall call me blessed. I believe her mind goes back to the circumstances of Hannah uh, and her experiences with, with the other wife of Elkanah, uh, Penina. And in the, the uh, first of Samuel chapter 1 and verse 11, we read the words of Hannah. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of armies, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto Yahweh all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And there we have the words of Hannah. If thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaid. And Mary says in verse 48, he has regarded the lowest state of the humiliation of his handmaid. And so we see that, 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 that Mary's mind is going back to those experiences of Hannah as she sees the rivalry in that house of Elkanah. Hannah which means grace. But, but, but Penina, the one who was blessed with children at that particular time. We look at verses verse 49 of Luke chapter 1. For he that is mighty hath done great things and holy is his name. We look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verses 1 and 3, or 1 to 3. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in Yahweh. Mine horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as Yahweh. There is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our Elohim. Talk no more so, so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For Yahweh is an ale of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. And she goes on and celebrates the great things that Yahweh had done for her in blessing her with a son in Samuel. And we notice how Mary's words, although going back all to, to, to uh, Exodus 15, we're also running very parallel with Hannah's thoughts as we go through the Song of Hannah. And there's no doubt at all that, that, that Mary is blending those two together as she contemplates the great things that Yahweh is to do for her. If you take verses 52 and 53 of Luke chapter 1, he has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich hath he sent away empty. And in, um, second, in first of Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 to 10 we read, Yahweh maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them, and Yahweh shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed or of his Messiah. And so we see that Mary's words are very similar to those of Hannah. And Mary's drawing upon these two great songs of the past as she now bursts forth in this song of rejoicing and praise in the house of Elizabeth. Now she contemplates the mighty things that Yahweh is going to do through the son that she is to bear. Her mind goes to that great deliverance of Israel out of Egypt by the mighty hand of Yahweh. 
And she sees that through her son a similar mighty deliverance is to be, to be wrought for all who will identify with him and have faith in him. They will be delivered from the darkness of Egypt, from bonding, bondage to sin and death and slavery. They will be redeemed from that for a glorious future in the kingdom of God. And as she contemplates the circumstances of Hannah and he sees Hannah humiliated and afflicted in that house. She sees the rivalry between these two women. She sees one, the gra- Hannah, who, whose name means grace. She sees her as a, a, a symbolic of the virgin daughter of Zion, a true daughter of Zion. She sees her symbolic of that humiliated class in Israel at that time who are clinging to the pure principles of the truth while an apostate nation, the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees ruled over them and afflicted them at that time. She sees the great contest between those two women, the apostate woman and the true bride of the Lord Jesus Christ and she rejoices over the great deliverance and the great victory that is to be achieved through her son and the ultimate deliverance that will be given to the true bride and the destruction that will come to that apostate woman who, who, who uh, uh, walks in high places in the earth today. And so again we're shown the very deep spiritual mind that Mary had. She no doubt spoke these words under divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit was probably upon her as it was upon Mary. She spoke by divine inspiration. We believe also that Mary did have a very deep understanding of those things revealed in the pages of the Old Testament, those promises that were made concerning the Messiah of Israel whom she was now to bring into existence. And so we find in verse 46 that Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God." my Saviour. She recognised that that son that she was to bear was to be her Saviour. She was dependent upon that son and as she contemplates the great salvation that Yahweh was to work through him, she magnifies Yahweh. She praises and she rejoices with her soul and her spirit symbols of her whole being her whole being soul and spirit was now put into the pouring forth of this beautiful song of praise and may it be brethren and sisters that we might be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that we may be among those who will experience the great blessing that he is to bring